0: Welcome to Vineyard Hopkinton. As we follow Jesus together, we experience the Holy Spirit, create a multicultural community, and pursue kingdom of God justice. Well, I want to talk about a town called Philippi, if I can. A little church started there a few years ago. So Philippi was a a city in Europe uh, during the Roman Empire. It was called Small Rome, which sounds a little patronizing, but I think it was meant as a compliment. Uh, so small Rome because it was so Roman and how it did everything, because it was so influential, it was so wealthy uh, that it, re- it kind of looked like Rome in many ways. Uh, and one of the cool things about Philippi is that it was the first European city that a church was planted in. So when Philippi gets planted in, Romans chapters, or in Acts chapter 16, we have now seen the church on three continents. It started in Asia, spread through most of Asia as, we, as they knew it back then, and then it went down into Africa, and then it went to Europe when it hit Philippi. It was the first spot that the gospel hit in Europe. But before the story of Philippi getting planted, we're told kind of what forced Paul to go and plant Philippi, and it wasn't very good uh, because Paul and his BFF Barnabas have a pretty epic fight and decide that they can no longer be friends. That's what it tells us in those exact words in Acts chapter 15. Not really those exact words, but pretty close, pretty close. Now, you might remember Barnabas from a couple of weeks ago. He's the super generous guy that sold his land so that uh, they could feed the, the needy folks in the Jerusalem church. Like at this point by Acts chapter 15, Paul and Barnabas are like worldwide apostles. They're respected by all. They're known by all throughout the church. They're pretty influential guys. And so then we come to Acts 15, verse 36. So if you want to read that along with me, this is what it says. After some time, Paul said to Barnabas, let's go back and visit each new city where we previously preached the word of the Lord to see how the new believers are doing. Barnabas agreed, and he wanted to take along John Mark. But Paul disagreed strongly since John Mark had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in their work. Their disagreement was so sharp that they separated. Barnabas took John Mark with him and sailed for Cyprus. Paul chose Silas, and as he left, the believers entrusted him to the Lord's gracious care, and then he traveled throughout Syria and Sicilia, strengthening the churches there. So here they are. They're getting ready to go on their second worldwide missions trip, and they have their itinerary planned. They got their bags packed, and they're like... Who's the person we're going to bring along with us to kind of show them what it looks like to do this thing? And Barnabas says, I want to bring Mark. And Paul says, ain't no way. And after like all that work that they just went through, he says, we're done. You bring Mark and we're done. My way or the highway, no other choice at this point. You know, Mark, when he left, he was a younger dude. Maybe he thought that he was on a short-term missions trip, not a career decision trip. And he was surprised when six months in, they were still going to another city the first time around, and he wanted to get home. It just says basically that he wanted to go home, and so he did. Uh, And for Paul, that was desertion. That was it. You were done. Walk away. There's no other option for him. And so Paul ends his decade-long ministry relationship, friendship with Barnabas over this edition of Mark to their itinerary. So who is right? You know, we always wanna know that, right? You always want like, who was actually correct? Who am I supposed to live like in this instance? You know, it's a little bit black and white or it's not like completely black and white, it's a little gray because both of them have really good track records. Like, nobody ever says a bad thing about Barnabas throughout the history of the church. The dude has, like, the cleanest record that you could possibly have. He's generous. He's gracious. He's basically Santa Claus with the message of Jesus. Like, this dude's epically good. Like, maybe intimidatingly good, if we're being honest. Like, so, like, that's Barnabas. And then there's Paul, who's probably, other than Jesus, what? The number two most influential person in the history of the church. He wrote half of the New Testament. Like, these are guys with really good track record. Who's right? I'm not quite sure. We don't know all the details. But I would say that Barnabas's heart was in the right place. Because Barnabas was willing to give grace to somebody who had failed. And that's a pretty good thing to be known for, right? You know, I, Willie James Jennings wrote that if the apostles named him son of encouragement, then Luke's narrative names him risk taker. Because Barnabas seemed to always make a heavy wager on people. I like that. He's a risk taker for people. That's a good thing to be known for. You know, I'm grateful for people who believed in me like this when I didn't have much going for me. Like, can you think of a few folks in your life that gave you a chance when you were like, I just screwed that up pretty epically bad. Like, that was what I just did. Like, I think of different people like uh, Alan. When I was 20... I was going to this small group of 50 people, which is basically a church plant. And he decided that he was going to hand over the small group to me and one other person. When I was 20 years old, he had been pastoring this group for five years. And he just handed it over because he believed that that's what God was asking him to do. Like I think of Chris, who was a small groups pastor at that time who treated me like I was an equal, even though I'm pretty sure that I was fairly arrogant and uh, did not actually know as much as I thought that I did uh, when I was talking to him about what he should be choosing to do. Or Eric, who was another pastor who kept giving me opportunities to figure out what this calling was that I felt like I had as a pastor, even when honestly the fruit was not there showing that I was definitely, obviously supposed to be a pastor. But he kept over and over giving me chances to step into it. I'm pretty grateful for people who were willing to be risk takers in my life. And if that's what Barnabas's life is known as, I think that's something that we should want to emulate in our own lives to live out well. Seems pretty right to me. So that's what Barnabas does. But Paul, what's interesting is that this, this fight... This breakup, if you will, causes Paul to then go on a completely different itinerary than he was going to go on, which led to him going to Philippi. Look at Acts 16, verse 6 with me. It says, next, Paul and Silas traveled through the area of Phrygia and Galatia. I'm not going to read all of these town names because they get a little bit uh, tricky for my tongue, if I'm being honest. But because the Holy Spirit had prevented them from preaching the word in the province of Asia at that time, then coming to another spot, they headed north to another spot. And then the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them to go there. So instead, they went to the seaport of Troas. That night, Paul had a vision a man from Macedonia in northern Greece was standing there pleading with him, come over to Macedonia and help us. So we decided to leave for Macedonia at once, having concluded that God was calling us to preach the good news there. We boarded a boat at Troas and sailed straight across the island, and the next day we landed at another spot, and there we reached Philippi, a major city of that district of Macedonia and a Roman colony And we stayed there several several days. On the Sabbath, we went a little way outside of the city to a riverbank where we thought people would be meeting for prayer. And we sat down to speak with some of the women who had gathered there. One of them was Lydia, a merchant of expensive purple cloth who worshiped God. She listened to us. The Lord opened her heart and she accepted what Paul was saying. She and her household were baptized and she asked us to be her guests. If you agree that I am a true believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my home. And she urged us until we agreed. Pretty, uh, pretty uh, strong personality there in Lydia. I, you know, you, you see what's going on. Paul's traveling now with Silas and Timothy, and then Luke jumps in, goes from they to we, which means that he entered the story. And then through divine intervention... They get told that they're supposed to go to Philippi, to Macedonia. And they're there, and they go to a prayer meeting by the riverside. Sounds pretty nice. Sounds like a good spot. And I I just love Lydia's heart here when she says, like, if you think that I'm actually a follower of Jesus then you have a place to stay. Like who says no to that, right? That's a pretty good uh, invite. And with that like strong statement, the church in Philippi is born and Lydia kind of essentially becomes the host and pastor of this church plant that then began to meet in her house. So after this, we're told that Paul and Silas are going for a walk through the city you know, probably being super spiritual and like praying about what's next or maybe just shopping for some food. You know, it depends what they were up to that day. And they're going through a walk and this girl starts following them and heckling them and messing with them. And it happens like day after day after day until finally, like after a few days, Paul gets so upset that he turns around and he does the worst thing that you could ever do. He turns around and says, okay, demons, come on out. In Jesus' name. And the demons left. And here this girl goes from being a fortune teller who's demon possessed to being completely freed spiritually, but still enslaved to her owners who were making a lot of money off of her as the fortune teller. And so her owners get pretty mad because all of a sudden their income stream's gone. And so they go and get the police, and they're like, this dude just broke up our racket that we had going. Like, he needs to go to jail. And so they take him, and they beat him, and they throw him in prison. And Paul and Silas are in pain in prison. They're praying. They're singing so poorly that an earthquake happens, and it shakes everything, and it literally breaks the chains off, and it opens prison doors, inspiring thousands of worship songs for the next 2,000 years, and so then they, instead of running away at that point, they say, like, no, 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 we got to stop everybody, so then they corral all the prisoners, and they're like, you're free, but you got to stay, and they save the jailer's life, who was getting ready to kill himself, and then they lead him to come to know jesus him and his whole household probably some of the prisoners came to know jesus at that point and then effectively they just doubled their church plant like all it took was a beating and an earthquake and like that's easy go do that in spain rob come on like come this is simple stuff right here right like <laughs> that's all it took it's just so easy paul's like you guys you read my stories and then you laugh uh but the next day what's funny is that like so this whole thing happens the next day the city officials find out and they're like let's just get these guys out of town so they go and they try and tell them like you're free bye bye see you later and paul and silas are like no no it's not you don't get away with it that easily and the the officials try to get them to leave they say no they stay and in verse 40 of chapter 16 when paul and silas left the prison they returned to the home of lydia And there they met with the believers and encouraged them once more. Then they left the town. Instead, they worship with this new church. Threats on their life and they stay to worship. Let's look at all the relationships that happened in this story that we just talked about. So there's Barnabas and Paul, longtime friends, ministry partners for a decade. Mentor becomes co-laborers. There's Mark, the one-time apprentice, turned now apprentice of just Barnabas. There's Timothy, who's the apprentice of uh, Paul at this point. There's uh, Paul and Silas, who are co-missionaries suffering together for the sake of the gospel. Uh, there's Lydia, who's this new church planner. And she's now a co-laborer of Paul and Silas. We have the entire church Church, including the jailer's family, that are encouraged by Paul and Silas, these new believers. And it's out of this like relational networking, this richness and messiness, that the church in Philippi is born. And it's to the church that started out of all of this that Paul writes the letter to the Philippians. And in chapter four of Philippians, Paul models relationships in a way that would have been impossible. When this whole story started, because he was not there yet. In order to get to what Paul wrote in chapter 4 of Philippians, he had to change. Some things had to grow and mature within him in order for him to get to that place. His relationship with Barnabas was fractured because it was my way or the highway. That had to change. And throughout the years, through the work of the Holy Spirit, through maybe just time in some ways, He begins to give grace in ways that he wasn't capable of grace when we started this whole story. And we see it through his letters. And one beautiful example is with Mark. So he he breaks up a friendship over Mark. And then casually throughout his letters, we see Mark's name starting to get thrown in. And he starts saying that Mark's valuable to him and that Mark helps him, and that Mark's a co-laborer, and all of these nice little compliments about who Mark is and what Mark's done for his ministry. And then we get to 2 Timothy, which is the last letter that Paul writes before he dies. And in chapter 4, verse 11, he says, only Luke is with me. Bring Mark with you when you come, for he will be helpful to me in my ministry. At the end of his life, when he knows he's getting ready to die, Paul asks for Mark. The one who deserted him is now one that he knows he can count on. That's a pretty beautiful story of relational reconciliation right there. And I think it happened because Paul worked through his stuff. Because he was able to mature and to grow in grace. And this is what happens in our relationships when we mature and when we grow in grace. Wesley Hill wrote that friendship is transformed by the good news of Jesus. The gospel propels and gives a new shape to friendship, disrupting its normal modus operandi and replacing it with a new Christ-shaped agenda. That's the goal for our relationships to be transformed by the good news, the message of Jesus, the mission of Jesus. And so it's out of this change in Paul's life that he's able to then write Philippians 4, 1 through 3. If you have a Bible, open up today. That's where we're going to be the rest of the time. He says this, Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stay true to the Lord. I love you and long to see you, dear friends, for you are my joy and the crown I receive for my work. Now I, now I appeal to Judea and Syntyche, Please, because you belong to the Lord, settle your disagreement. And I ask you, my true partner, to help these two women, for they worked hard with me in telling others the good news. They worked along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are written in the book of life. Brothers and sisters, friends, true partner, and co-worker. These names for relationships that we as followers of Jesus have with inside of the church That I want to talk about this morning, but let's start with talking about the first one that I want to address, friends. He says, dear friends, when he's talking to the entire church, you know, what is a healthy friendship? If you were to look like, do you ever think of like aliens looking at us and like trying to analyze what we believe based off of TV? That's kind of a fun game to play. So if you thought like, what would aliens think about friendship based off of TV through the decades? So you have in the 80s, the, the good old Boston cheers, uh, which is showing us that friendship is about some white collar and blue collar folks who get together every day to drink alcohol, uh, at a place that's uh, at a bar owned by a recovering alcoholic, which is a little ironic and, messy in a lot of different ways but we won't go down that road uh, and you know that's what friendship is right drinking buddies right that's what it is and then you go to the 90s and we have friends so it's six friends who live together who date each other who break up with each other who then date other people in that very small friendship circle and then they break up with that that person then they get back with other people that they dated in that very small friendship circle because that's what we should do as friends right like that's how we're supposed to live this out and then you get to the 2000s and you have the office which is a group of co-workers who basically dislike each other in every possible way except for like a couple of them but they have this strange bond that keeps growing because they're forced to spend time together, like a lot and a lot of time together. And so they kind of grow like emotionally connected in kind of weird ways based on the fact that they still don't actually like each other even by the end. Like so that's what friendship is supposed to be. Yeah. They, it's it's kind of confusing to figure out like what are my friends supposed to like i'm not quite sure what this is supposed to look like a lot of strange messages and then we add into that the you know just different social realities that we have in in our world digitalization uh you know loneliness in our country all these things that that complicate relationships and it just makes it a little hard to know like what how are we supposed to be living this out you know, I recently read an article by a pastor who was talking about uh, rings of relationship is what he, the the picture that he used. And so he, you know, inner ring, out, uh, middle ring, and then outer ring. And so the inner ring is basically your, your family, your spouse, your, your best friends, the people who you're going to make at least some attempt to be connected with regardless of what happens in life. Your outer ring is people who you like casually know, uh, neighbors across the street that you wave to when you're being friendly or that you duck your head from when you're not feeling friendly, uh, the barista at your favorite donkeys that you know her name and her child's uh, that she, her kids in fifth grade, and so you can casually ask that while well, she knows exactly what drink that you get. Uh, you know, coworkers who you talk to on Monday morning about their weekend and then you ignore for the next four days. Like those sorts of people that are around all the time that you can go as close as you want to, but are really on the peripheral of, of your life. And then there's the middle ring. And that's what we would mostly consider friendships. It's like affinity groups people you do stuff with. So it's your, not mine, but for other people, it's your running group, you know, like people that you go running with regularly, like Henning. Uh, for, for other people, it would be, you know, uh, your, your basketball group that you play with on Thursday nights. It, maybe it's your small group at church. Uh, maybe it's your book club. You know, it's people that you choose to do life with because you have like, shared affinity things that you enjoy doing together. And that's the group that basically disappeared over the last couple of years, right? It was those sorts of groups that we stopped meeting with during the pandemic. For obvious reasons, not judging any of that, it's just the group that kind of dissipated. So we still had our inner ring and we still had our outer ring, but that in-between ring kind of disappeared during that time. And so it led to this like categorical loss of friendship is what he was getting at, uh, which led to more loneliness and and struggles relationally. And uh, scientists would say that it's led to uh, less happiness for people because they say that those sorts of friendships are actually the place that we find the most happiness in life because we're choosing to do life with them in, in more unique ways. And the group that scientists always talk about when they talk about this is church for this middle ring. And they say that people in churches are happier Because uh, they ask intentionally relational questions. Now, before you say no, it's not just because of that, we'll get there. But they say that it's because of the intentionally relational questions. So, asking questions like what does a healthy community look like? Uh, What do we owe each other as committed members of this group? How do we look after each other? What's our shared mission? That when we're in groups of people that ask those sorts of questions, that there grows a sense of contentment, uh, of joy. Uh, uh, it leads to, to being able to love people a little bit more because you're intentional about how you're living life together. Uh, and it leads us to just living better lives. Not just happier, but, but better. Now, we know that, like, that's part of it. I do think that that is a good part of church, that we can ask those sorts of questions and really dig in but we know that a big part of it is the fact that like as followers of Jesus we don't get an option when it comes to relationships right We follow a relational God. He is three in one. He is a relationship constantly. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. When we are, when we choose to follow God, we are not just in relationship with God, but we are in relationship with each other with God. And there's this constant interconnectedness that goes on between us. It's in our DNA. We're created for relationship. From the moment that we choose, we're born into a family, adopted into a family, we're welcomed into a community, and we don't have an option about it. And that's actually a really good thing for us. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're a part of the church, whether you want to or not. That's what the Bible tells us. And so when we look at Philippians chapter four and we see Paul starting to lay out these relationships within the church, the first one that he talks about is, well, second one, brothers and sisters. I know some of you would would critique me on that one later. So I'll I'll admit it's the second one. But the first one I wanna talk about is dear friends. Dear friends, it's a word that means beloved. That means worthy of love. It's not romantically based it's the term that jesus uses for the church that he tells us to have for each other and in the church we're called to look at each other paul says and say beloved you're worthy of love to every single person around you that's to be our attitude towards each other as followers of jesus you know I've mentioned before that I like to go to monasteries and abbeys for retreats by myself, and that makes some people really uncomfortable because they think I'm going to tell them they have to go and do it. Not really that, but I find it to be good and healthy for me. And I remember a particularly long retreat taking a couple of Brendan Manning books, Uh, and Brendan Manning's written a lot about this concept of beloved. And I was reading Abba's Child, sitting outside. It was a nice day, kind of a perfect uh, space for me uh, to be kind of renewed and refilled. And, And I read this line, define yourself radically as one beloved by God. This is the true self. Every other identity is illusion. Define yourself radically as one beloved by God. And as I read that, I started going crazy inside. Something started to like get a little twitchy. And I was like, what's happening right now? Like, what's bothering me about this? And so then I got up and I did what every... Good crazy person does when they're praying, and I start pacing and talking to myself. You know, looking a little bit intense, and I'm like, Jesus, what is it that's bothering me about this? Something about this, 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 not you know, and like, kind of working through, like, why does it feel so difficult for me to say that I'm beloved in this way? What is it that's going on internally? And I'm working it out with God, and I'm praying about it, and I'm saying, like, there's something here, and I keep working it out, and then tears start to come, and, and like, I'm just processing through this and I think I spent like the whole afternoon really in that spot just kind of digging into this idea that God calls me beloved and that I'm worthy of love and I reached the end of that time with this sense of kind of beginning to be transformed inside something was getting changed in me that needed to be changed I needed to know that as part of my identity. Because we are beloved by God. You are worthy of love. Not because you do things that I appreciate, although I appreciate it when you do things I appreciate. You are worthy of love because you are you. Period. You are beloved. That's what we should look at each other and say. It's not an emotionally based thing of like, I finally reached the point where I can look at Sue Turner and say, you are beloved. No, it's like, Sue's like, oh. Uh, No, it's just reaching that place where we say, okay, this is who God says that we are. But it's something that has to happen internally before we can really truly begin to live it out. We have to accept the fact that we're beloved by God, that we're worthy of love. But when we can accept that, when we can begin to allow that to sink in to the deepest parts of us, our relationships with each other are going to change dramatically in that moment because we are dear friends we are worthy of love that's who we are and so paul continues and then he asks for his true partner Now, this word could be uh, a name, and maybe in your translations it says a name there instead of true partner, Uh, and uh, so some have said that that's what it's supposed to be translated. Other have said that because it's a commonly used word, that it should stay as true partner because Paul was speaking to somebody in the congregation that would have read this letter, that would have heard this out loud and known, oh shoot, he's talking to me. Somebody like Luke or Silas who would have been at the church in Philippi at the time that they received this letter who partnered with Paul in bringing the message of Jesus to that community. This is a really strong term. It won't include every friend that you have and that's okay. It's not really supposed to but it's something that matters. This word used here means those united by bond, those yoked together tightly connected, interconnected in a way that is not easily broken. So let me ask, do you have a friend like that? Do you have a, a true partner in how you live your life? And I do think that this is required to be a follower of Jesus because I think it's a spiritual bond that is only connected by that shared uh, connection to Jesus in this I don't think you can do it if one or the other isn't a follower of Jesus for this specific relationship. You know, your spouse, of course, can be your true partner. But to limit it to spouse would... I mean, Paul wasn't married. I think that would be a very limiting thing. This covers much more than just married folks, which is really good news. It's not limited to that, although it could include that. You know, I could think of a few, very, very few, but a few, guys who I've done life with, who I've gone through seasons of pain with, who I've spent hours with, gone on trips with, hung out with, uh, really built and, and grown relationship with, that I've done ministry with, that would fit into this category. And that sort of friendship is really worth a lot. It's somebody who's with you through all times. You know, when you walked in, hopefully you received a paper that said, "Who are your dear friends? Who are your true partners? And who are your uh coworkers?" And if you did, you know, I just threw you off, Jesse. I'm not actually calling you up right now. I know. I just I just broke you up. Sorry. My bad. We'll talk about it afterwards and work it out. <laughs> I just saw that. I was like, oh, no, I didn't. Uh, But on that, think about who those people are in your life. Like, who has God placed beside you that you can walk through all seasons of life with? And then Paul ends this section by calling out his co-workers. It means literally those who labor with him in furthering the cause for Christ. People that you're actively working alongside of to bring the message and the mission of Jesus into our world. Willie James Jennings says that there's an inescapable vulnerability that shapes the lives of disciples and it cannot be born alone. The kind of relationship is required where each carries the same realities of covenantal loyalty to God And faithfulness to the gospel. There's a a covenant to the gospel that needs to go into our relationships as followers of Jesus. You know, honestly, if I was going to push us a little bit this morning, I would say in the American church, this is the area that I see as lacking the most. We don't do very well being co workers in bringing the gospel to our communities. You know, and we look at our churches, and, and I think there's a lot of Christians who are, who are really uh, committed to going to church, to, uh, to living morally upright lives, to doing life together, and that's really good. But is that actually the extent of everything that we're called to do as followers of Jesus? If you look at what Jesus said right before he left in Acts 1, and then at the end of Matthew, where he he gives these commissions, these commands to go. He says, go and take my good news to all the world, to all people. Spread the message and the mission of Jesus everywhere. That's what we're called to do. And we can't do that alone. We're called to move forward the mission of Jesus together. You know, I think many of us have probably heard the phrase that the church is a hospital for sinners. Some of you have heard that. And that's, that's good. That's fine. I think there's some truth in that. But that can't be it. Because what I picture in that is dropping somebody off at the door to the ER and then waving and saying Goodbye. Essentially, that's walking somebody in here, giving them a comfortable seat, getting a bowl of popcorn or a cup of coffee and saying, good luck, bye-bye. Like the church isn't supposed to be a place where we remain sick. We enter sick. We probably need to keep working through our, our sicknesses, but where we don't stay where we started. That's not what we're called to do. The church is supposed to be a place where the sick are healed, where the dead are raised, where the oppressed are set free. And we are called to walk people to those places, to bring them to that place, not through us, but through the power of the Holy Spirit and through the love of Jesus. We're not called just to leave people here and say, good luck. We're called to walk them towards health and healing and wholeness. That's what the church is called to. And if we're going to do this, we have to have co-workers, people that we are living out the mission of Jesus with, that we're actively moving towards the kingdom of God coming in our world. We're the church. We're the body of Christ. We're the family of God. We're brothers and sisters, the beloved. We're true partners bonded together. We're co-workers whose names are written in the book of life. And we are called to do life together with intentionality, with purpose, and with a message that cuts through everything else in our world with power. That is what relationships look like in the body of Christ. Amen? That is what we're called to do. So who are you carrying out this message with? Who's your Barnabas? Who's your Silas? Who's your Lydia? Who are you doing the stuff with in your life? I want to encourage you to take that sheet, to write down names this week and to say, who, God, are you actually calling me to work with in these roles? Who have you placed in my life that I can live this out with? And be intentional about it. And there may be one category that's a little bit light and you feel a little bit nervous about that, but that's good. That just means that Jesus wants to encourage you to grow in that area. That's not a bad thing. Pray into it. Ask him who that person is. You know, I, I would guess that most of those people on that sheet are in this room because for some crazy reason jesus placed us here together to do life together to be these sorts of relationships together that's how he works he places us in bodies within the body to live this out together so let's move from me to we not simply so that we feel less lonely although that's good but so that we can live out the calling that Jesus has placed on us to bring mission and message bearers into our world with power through the Holy Spirit. Let's have deep, healthy relationships because honestly, if you want to see one thing that's going to make people notice that something's strange about you, it's that you're healthy in your relationships. If you could do that, people are going to say, there's something about how you live your life, and I want it because that's hugely attractive in a world of dysfunction. Let's live this out together. Let's stand and pray. The worship team's going to lead us in worship. Holy Spirit, come. Jesus, I just thank you that you've placed us in community for a reason that you've placed us around the people that are here for a reason. And Jesus, I just pray that we'll be, that you'll, you'll first speak to our hearts and, and help us to acknowledge and to realize that we are beloved, that we are worthy of love, not just by you, but definitely by you, but that we're worthy of love and called beloved by those around us as well there's this interconnectedness that's at work. And God, I just pray for those of us that this is a struggle for. That this idea of being beloved just feels really foreign. And I just ask Holy Spirit that you will come and work through the the pain, the brokenness, and bring healing in a way that only your love can. Jesus, I pray that you will help us to live out the calling that you've given us as a church, intentional, focused on bringing your good news to our world through love, through power, through wholeness and health. Let your kingdom come through our community and in our community, and your will be done We don't have to wait till we get to heaven to experience what good friendships look like. You've brought heaven to your body. Help us to live that out well. We love you, Jesus. As we enter into this time of worship, we just acknowledge that you are good, that you are holy, and that you are worth all that we could ever give to you. Jesus' name.